Good morning. Glad to be here this morning. Uh, appreciate each of you being here. Hope you're benefited and uplifted by the study of the morning. I want to ask a few questions as we start this morning about influence. Who do you think about in your life when you think about influential people? I know as I kind of thought about that question, you kind of go through the Rolodex of people that have been in your life. You think about maybe some famous people. You maybe think about individuals in your life, parents, grandparents, those kind of people that influence you. But we all know that there's people in our lives that has influenced us. Who do you think about in your life that you are an influence to? Maybe that's a better question to ask. Maybe you don't think you're an influence to somebody in your life. And I want to talk about influence this morning, but more specifically, being an influencer. Not just the idea that we have influence or that influence exists, but the idea that we are influencers and that we should be influencers and that we should desire to influence other people and that we should desire to have that kind of relationship with people that would allow us to make an impact in their life. If you might remember last time we began a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians and we talked about the the church there and Paul starts in chapter 2 here kind of talking about his own behavior and I believe that's what he's trying to teach us in this chapter. It's about influence and what the way that he interacted with those people and you know the way that uh, he behaved when he was around them, the things that they saw in his life and all that kind of thing. I, I've noticed a trend in the last few years um, in and around social media that there's people who call their occupation an influencer. Somebody will say, well, I'm a, I'm a social media influencer. And it's, it's a very strange thing to me. It's something that didn't exist most of my life. I've just started hearing about it in the last few years. It's really marketing and advertising and that kind of thing, right? But it's somebody's actual occupation. They'll say, I'm a I'm a social media influencer, and it's where a company sponsors them, pays them, puts them on the payroll, however you want to look at it, to influence a product or a service or something else that they're selling, right? And so you see it all over Instagram and things like that. Somebody's an, an influencer, and, and what is it about those people that allows them to get paid to do that? Well, there's something in their life that, that makes it that. Maybe they're you know, an influencer for GoPro, and they know how to jump out of planes without a parachute and spread some wings and fly for a couple of miles and land safely, and they do these adventurous things. And so the company wants them doing these things and telling everybody they're using a GoPro while they do it so that people will go buy GoPros when they're trying stupid stuff like jumping out of planes. Or maybe they have some kind of physical characteristics. They're a really attractive person, and some company like Red Bull pays them to run around the world in a swimsuit and go to all these beautiful places and let people see them in their swimsuit and that kind of stuff. There's some characteristic in these people's lives that makes them desirable as an influence for that. And I think Christianity Christianity and spiritual things are the same way, that there's influence in our lives. And Paul talks about that. And I want us to really consider that this morning. And I want to encourage you and uh, make the argument that you should desire to be a spiritual influencer that you should want to influence the lives of other people. The truth of the matter is you don't have a choice in the matter. You are going to be an influence to somebody. If you're a parent, you know that's true. If you're a young kid, you may not see that as much, but as you grow older, as you do things, as you get married, as you have kids, as you interact with people in the workplace, you're going to understand that influence exists whether you want it to or not. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, I became a basketball fan Watched a lot of NBA basketball in the late 80s and the 90s. And 
there was a man named Charles Barkley. If you know anything about sports, you're familiar with that name. If you don't, he's a, he's a TV personality now. He's on these college basketball broadcasts and NBA games and things like that. And he's a very loud and boisterous type of personality. And he was that way when he played the game back in the 90s. You know, he was known for getting technical fouls because he loses temper. He'd kick a ball. He'd shove another guy, whatever, right? There was a very uh, distinct time that sticks out in my mind. I remember as a, as a you know, early teenager, um, kind of an older child, where there's some event that happened in Charles Barkley's career, and it, he just, it looked really bad, right? He, his behavior was awful. And some, some guys questioned him and said, hey, don't you know there's kids watching this stuff? There's kids that are watching these basketball games and idolizing you and things like that, and then you go and behave like this? Doesn't that matter to you? And he said, no, I don't care. I'm not their parent. It's not my job to raise these kids. It's not my job to set an example for these kids. And most reasonable adults look at that and say, look, that's exactly what you should be doing. You should be setting a good example for these kids and giving them something to look up to. They, you're, you're at the very best. You're at the top level of this. You have such a tremendous opportunity to do that. And he just said, it wasn't my job. And I want to make the argument this morning that it is our job and that Charles Barkley's wrong about that and that we should influence other people. And I also want to make the argument that this is one of the most important jobs of a Christian. Building influence in people's lives, influencing another human being, whether that's your kids or your spouse or the people you work with or the people that we're trying to take the gospel to, that one of the most important jobs of a Christian is influencing someone. And I want to demonstrate that this morning with the scriptures in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to spend most of our time there. If you want to follow along, we're going to have the scriptures on the board. But I think that's the exact argument that Paul is making to the church at Thessalonica on the impact that he had with them and why they did the things that they did. It was because of his influence. And I want us to embrace that and the fact that we should do that in a godly way and and become influencers in our lives. There's a man named John C. Maxwell who's kind of a secular author, written a lot of books on leadership and things like that. And I came across a quote from him that said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And it's a very simple statement, and it's probably oversimplified, but at its core, it's very true. I've managed people in the workplace for 15 years now, and there's a lot of learning from the school of hard knocks that goes along in that kind of situation. And one of the things that you learn, if you've done that very long, you know this, is that Ultimately, the relationships that you have with people and the influence that you build with them through that working relationship, but, but, but many times more so through getting to know them and learning about their families and understanding their lives and what, what things they like and are interested in and the things that they want to do, makes so much more of a difference than just being the boss, right? There's short-term results that come from being the boss. There's times where you can walk in and say, hey, I need, to get, I need you to do this whether you agree with it or not, and it's because I said so, we just got to get it done. And you might get short-term results from that, but before long, the guy you or the girl you say that to is looking for a new job. And then you wonder why they left and went on to greener pastures. But if you build the kind of relationships you need to, to have a, a good influence with them, that's what leadership is all about. And really, that's what leading is. It's trying to get people to do stuff, not that you want them to do, it's trying to get them to do stuff because they want to do it. And having a godly influence in somebody's life is the key to all of that. 
You want somebody to obey the gospel? you got to have influence. You can't just walk in and start spouting out scriptures without influence. It doesn't work that way. Maybe one out of a thousand people will respond to that, right? They just The word hits them on its, strictly on its own like that. They come across it randomly. I don't know, whatever the case may be. But most of the time, it doesn't work that way. And they've got to know something about you and understand you. And that's exactly what Paul did in, when he showed up in Thessalonica. And that's the kind of influence that he's describing here. Hope you enjoy the study of the morning. We might recap chapter 1 just a little bit. If you remember, we talked about the church in Thessalonica there. It's on Paul's second missionary journey when he came across them and founded this congregation. He had just come from Philippi, Acts chapter 16, Philippian jailer, all that stuff that happened. He ends up in Thessalonica, starts talking to people there. It talks about the men and women that obeyed the gospel there. There were some of the Jews that obeyed, a lot of the Greeks that obeyed. Remember, he talked about a lot of leading women obeyed. So he founded this congregation in Thessalonica in a very secular city at the time and in the midst of a lot of persecution. The Jews there were giving them lots of grief. And if you remember, we talked about last time how that congregation kind of became a model congregation. He commended them for their efforts there and the way that they behaved, the way that they received him and the others, the way that they accepted the word of God, the way that they went about working after they had received it. And at the end of that chapter, he says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Remember we talked about they became an example. They didn't even have to talk about it on their behalf. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So that model congregation, they were kind of doing things right. They were doing things that he asked them to do. Remember we talked about how he went on to say in that chapter, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So all this persecution was going on at the time, and it didn't phase them. They received Paul and the others. They saw what had been going on. He said, you became imitators of us. Last time we argued that imitation is a good thing, that we should look for people to imitate as Christians. We should look for brothers and sisters that are people that we can imitate because they're doing things the way God's asked them to do. And we should imitate the Lord as we read about the examples that he sets. And we should look at other congregations, and we should be imitators of other congregations. And that's what the church in Thessalonica did. They became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. Now, the flip side to this influence thing is, yeah, it's great. As a congregation, we should imitate people that set these examples, but you got to have the example set to imitate it. And that's kind of where Paul redirects his thinking here in chapter 2. The flip side of this imitation game, it's someone that's not only able to or has their credentials to. Sometimes we think of it that way, right? Like, does this person have their credentials to imitate? In my job, if I have a boss, and I do have a boss, is he someone I would want to imitate? Well, what are his credentials? Does he work hard? Do I, you know, you hear about bosses that are just slackers, right? They just want everybody else to do the work. I don't want to imitate somebody like that. I want to imitate somebody that sets the example, that he's out there working first, that he's done the things he's asking us to do, that he's still willing to do the things he's asked us to do, that he conducts himself in a way that makes me want to follow after him and do the things that he's asked us to do. There's a flip side to this whole imitation game, and that's what he's arguing here in chapter 2. And I want you to listen to how he talks about himself. We're going to talk about 
why he talks about himself that way this morning, but listen to how he describes himself here in chapter 2. And really, he's talking about himself and, the, and of course, the men that are with him. But he's, he's, he's kind of shifted focus from the Thessal- Thessalonians to himself and how he and the others behaved when they were among them. So the first thing is the character of an influencer. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he references that, right? We, we just came down the road from Philippi. We were beaten. We were thrown in jail there. But our coming to you was not in vain because we still believed in God. We still had confidence in him. We still wanted to bring the gospel to you here. And so he kind of starts this exercise in resume building. He kind of starts to recount his resume to them. Now, this is a group that's already heard all this, right? He had been there for three weeks or a month, moved, moved down the road when he's writing this letter, but he's reminding them of these things. He's reminding them of what the importance of this influence was. And he's saying, look, we didn't come to you here with these vain words or actions for that matter. We were just beaten. Um, but we weren't phased. We still had something to do. We had something that God wanted us to do, and we want our actions to display that. This is the real deal. You know, you think about, you hear people make the argument about Paul um, making a lot of the statements in his letters out of own self-interest or out of trying to move, to move forward his own, you know, his own self or exalt himself or whatever. Well, he debunked that a lot in his letters, and frankly... If he was trying to do that, he wasn't very good at it. He wasn't very good at moving forward his own self-interest. I mean, he's got the snot beat out of him in Philippi in jail. Now, it led to a conversion, and we, that's the example we use, but he wasn't very good at moving his own self-interest. But he was pretty, pretty good at moving forward the gospel. And don't you think that knowing what Paul and the others went through in Philippi before they got to Thessalonica, don't you think that had an impact on them? You think about somebody showing up to talk to us here, and we don't know anything about them. We don't know their history or whatever. They show up, you know, fine clothes, lots of jewelry, fancy cars. They came in on a private jet, all that stuff. Want to talk to us? We're going to kind of tilt our head at that a little bit, right? But somebody shows up beaten and bruised, and they say, hey, you know, sorry the way I look. We ran into some rough times coming up from Plainview. We're here to talk to you about something. And we want you to listen to us. Isn't that going to have some more weight behind it than the guy that's living the life of luxury? And I'm not suggesting you got to get beat up to tell people the gospel, but I'm suggesting authenticity matters. And the character of the influencer is what matters. So he kind of builds this resume here. But it's not enough just to build the resume. The heart of the influencer matters. Listen to what he says. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Why did Paul take the gospel to the Thessalonians? Why didn't he stop at Philippi after all that stuff happened to him and be like, I'm going to take a break. We need a vacation. It's time to settle down for a little bit. It wasn't by mistake. It wasn't any attempt at deception, like he says. All he was worried about was pleasing God and doing God's will. He said he was entrusted with this gospel, and it was clear. It was clear from the things that went on. It was clear from his actions. It was clear that it wasn't about him. He made a similar statement in his letter to the Galatians. 
He said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This, this statement uh, immediately follows the, the passage in Galatians where he's talking to them about, you know, if, if somebody else, if somebody presents to you a, a different gospel than what I presented to you, let them be accursed. And he repeats that, right? He, he says it over and over again. I say to you again, if anyone brings to you another gospel, let them be accursed. And so then he says, because am I seeking the approval of man? I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm not going to bring to you another gospel because I don't care about my interest. I don't care about some other guy's interest. I care about God's interest. It's his gospel that we're trying to bring to you. I'm not trying to please man. If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a Christian. There's way better ways to try to please man than being a Christian. Being a Christian is not the way to please man. And that, that's clear in his writing, and that's what he told them. And you often see... In people of power, people that have influential positions, small or big, right? Whether it's your boss in the workplace, some civic leader, some president, some king, whatever. You see all of these different motives on display with these people, right? There's all kinds of motives behind what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so I want to touch just for a minute on the motives of the influencer. What is our motive in trying to influence other people? What is your motive in influencing your kid? Well, some may say, well, I want them to be a contributing member to society. I want them to have a good education. You know, I want them to learn how to work. I want them to learn how to provide for themselves. Some would say, I want them to go to heaven, right? I would hope that's the goal of everyone here as we think about influencing our children. What is the goal of our, with our kids? It's we want them to go to heaven. We want all this other stuff for them, too. If, if my kids grow up and they're smarter than me, that's fantastic. I hope that happens. If they grow up and have more money than me, I hope that happens, and I hope they share. I want all of those things for my kids, but at the end of the day, I want them to go to heaven, and there's nothing else I care about. So the motive of the influencer makes a huge difference. There's people that go through the motions on this kind of stuff. I think about the Joel Olsteins of the world, you know, it's really, really difficult, and it's not my place to judge his heart, but it is really difficult for me to get to a place where I think his motives are pure and right. He's preaching from his manicured lawn at his mansion in Houston, or he's preaching from the, the jet bridge to his private jet, or his fancy cars, and he's filling you with everything you want to hear, all the right things to say. It's really hard for me to get there on motives. And Paul worked hard and talked about and established motives that were pure and were, everything was done for the right reason. And it was all the difference in the world on whether he was influential to those people in Thessalonica. Our motives matter a lot. We never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You've seen people that do that, right? You hear about law enforcement, right, overextending their authority or whatever, right? Or you hear about them pulling somebody over and somebody saying, well, do you know who I am? Throwing titles around or my dad's the mayor, you know, whatever. He said, we, look, we could have made demands as apostles, right? But we know that's not the right way to do things. And we didn't come with a pretext of greed. We weren't trying to deceive you about anything, you know, and all the red flags of Joel Osteen go up for me when I read this passage. He's what not to do in this case. 
And Paul's sort of blue-collar Christian, if you think about it. He's in the trenches with it. He's getting beat on, their, you know, on behalf of the gospel. He's doing whatever it takes to show that he's one of the people. And his motives were in the right place. And he had a heart that was geared toward pleasing God and not toward pleasing man. Some of the scholars uh, that talk about the book of 1 Thessalonians here argue that he's specifically defending his character against people that had come in and kind of tried to undercut it. I, I had a hard time finding anything that supported that that was factual. I suspect it probably was happening and could have happened. You remember, I mean, he's preaching to a, a region that was full of idol worship. As you read in Acts 17, he's visiting those places and ends up in, in Athens talking about the idol worship there. And he even talks about here how he, they turned from idol worship to serve the true and living God. And so he may be making a specific defense of character here to them, reminding them, you know, because somebody's attacking him. I, I couldn't get there in terms of finding information that supported that directly. But regardless, he was directly talking to them about his motives and what he was doing. And he's very careful with his initial interaction with the Thessalonians, right? He's very careful about the way he conducted himself initially with them especially, Right? And you think about how relationships work in real life. It's kind of that way, right? You, you kind of are more guarded with people that you first meet and how you're interacting with them and how you talk and do that kind of stuff. And then as you build relationships, you can slowly start to handle things a little differently. Not that he changed in his motives or his behavior, but in his interaction. He was very careful with that. He, he says it to him. He says he is very, you know, he's careful how he interacts with them. He was really guarded on the pretext of coming out of greed and trying to deceive them for money and that kind of stuff. He's very careful with those interactions, and he doesn't want them to accept him based on that. Now, he wrote to the church at Philippi, and I think this is very interesting because this is kind of a a 180-degree view of what he said to the Thessalonians. So listen to what he wrote it to the church at Philippi about providing him support. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So as he's establishing these churches, leaving Macedonia, the Philippians apparently supported him, assuming monetarily in some way. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if they wrote him a check, if they gave him food. I don't know how that worked. But in some way, they provided that kind of support to him. And they were the only ones at the time that he's referencing that provided that support to him. Right? So he said, even in Thessalonica. So after he gets down the road in Thessalonica, he's kind of living on some of the support from the Philippians. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What's the difference in the two scenarios? From the Thessalonians, he said, I don't want your money. I don't, I'm not going to take it. I don't want... From the Philippians, he took a gift. Well, the truth is, he already had influence in Philippi. He had spent time with them. He would built the relationships. In Thessalonica, he was going into new territory where... It, the greed could have mattered. It was all about influence. He knew what he needed to be influential to those people. And so he didn't want to take money from them. It was all about influence. It was about character. And he had a relationship in Philippi that he had already demonstrated that character. And in Thessalonica, it was a new group of people that didn't know anything about him. 
But what does he say? Even as he accepts the gift from the church in Philippi, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He didn't care about a retirement account or what possessions he could get because of the gifts they gave him. He just wanted to spread the gospel, and that was all he was after. And them helping him monetarily, supplying his needs, however you want to look at it, let him spread the gospel. And that was the gift that he was after. And he gave him credit for that. He thanked him for participating in that. His motives were pure, and his motives allowed him to be influential, allowed him to be an influencer. Not only in Thessalonica, but in multiple congregations. As we understand what motivated him, it leads us to think about his actions. What does influential behavior look like? You can have the resume designed to look good. You can know all the right things to say. You can say all the right things. I think about over the years as I've interviewed people that we've had to hire, a lot of computer programmer type of people, and it's kind of well known that computer programmers are kind of an arrogant bunch. They don't think anybody can do it better than they can. You know, they always have the right answers. They always have a better answer, all that kind of stuff. But there's, it's well known in those circles that a lot of computer programmers are really good at interviews, and then once they get in the trenches, you're, it's a totally different person. And that's what we're trying to talk about here. We don't want to be good resume, good interview, horrible worker kind of people. That's not what he's wanting. So he just keeps building on this and laying out the argument for the things that, that he was able to influence them with. And certainly his behavior is one of those things. In verse number seven, he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He talks about this metaphor of being a mother. You think about the Thessalonians in their uh, maturity as Christians. It's pretty, it's pretty new, right? They're new Christians. He'd been with them three weeks or a month or whatever it was. Maybe by the time he wrote this letter, it was a couple months. I don't know the exact time frame on that, but it, it wasn't long. So you think of the whole newborn babes in Christ kind of scenario, right? And he says, we were gentle like a mom that takes care of a baby. And that's how we dealt with you. That's how we were in our interactions, but not just because we wanted to be that way, because we cared about you. And he uses that term affectionately desirous. That, that Greek word is, is only used once in the Scriptures. I didn't go down a rabbit trail of really chasing that a long ways, so you might want to verify that. But best I could tell, that's only used once. And I think it's because he's trying to get to them the, the impact of that. And that word, that word means to long for passionately. He longed for them passionately. You think about the way a new mom looks at that baby or a new parent looks at that baby and the feelings that they have toward that child and that they would do anything for them. That's how he felt toward this new congregation. He was affectionately desirous of them. He said, you'd become very dear to us. And it's interesting to me that the guy that just got beat up down the road in Philippi had an attitude of nurturing as he showed up in Thessalonica. You know, he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He didn't want revenge for what had happened to him. He didn't let it frustrate him to the fact that he was ready to quit. He showed up in Thessalonica with a nurturing attitude, and that's how he treated the brethren there. And so he was really authentic, and I think that's a good summary word of what we're trying to say this morning, right? We're authentic in our behavior. 
Not only did he say all these things, but the way he interacted with them is that he showed them that that's really how he was. You've, you've heard people say, I've heard it many times in sermons and in the church, but you hear people say that the other people don't know how much, don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care about them. Doesn't that play out true? There's a reason people say that. It's because it's true. People don't care about how smart you are, how much money. They don't care about any of that if you don't care about them. It's just how the world works. They don't care. And for Paul to have the kind of influence that he wanted to have, he knew that, and they became dear to him. And it was all for the sake of the gospel. Paul goes on in this letter, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of studies from now, but it's, it's kind of interesting because he has all this conversation about their behavior and their attitude and their conduct and how they respond to the gospel and all this kind of stuff. And then at the end of 1 Thessalonians, he talks, ends up talking about the second coming of Christ. And he, you know, is addressing essentially a doctrinal issue with them. But, you know, that's a topic that, and, and, and 1 Thessalonians may be the, the, most, um, the most comprehensive spot in the Scriptures that discusses the second coming. And again, we're going to talk about that here in a few studies. But, you know, it's interesting to me that this new congregation is getting talked to about all this stuff. You know, you think about the concepts as we think about Christ's return and all that kind of stuff. There's some, there's some meaty stuff there, right? There's some stuff that, um, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of faith stuff in that. There's a lot of trusting in the Lord in that kind of stuff. And this is a new group of people. There's no way in the world they would have listened to him on that if they didn't think he cared about them, if he hadn't built this influence and the conduct and the attitudes and the behaviors that led him to talk about stuff like that. We've got to be able to influence people to, to spread the gospel. Listen how he gets here in verse number 9 uh, as he continues to talk about his behavior, and he gets pretty descriptive about this. For you, remembers, brother, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct Toward you believers. Influential behavior is something that we saw in how Paul conducted himself. His conduct supported the fact that he was trying to influence those people. And if you were going to use a word to describe that, you might think of a word like integrity. He had integrity in his interactions with those men and women. You couldn't accuse him of being greedy, he didn't take anything. You couldn't accuse him of being lazy. He said, We work night and day while we were trying to spread the gospel. He means He certainly worked to spread the gospel, but he means he worked. He did a job while he was among them. He wasn't lazy. So you couldn't accuse him of being greedy, couldn't accuse him of being lazy. He got in and got after it, and he worked so he wouldn't be a burden. It sounds to me like he didn't take anything from them monetarily. And everything that he said to them, he lived out in his actions. Everything he told them they should do, he showed them how to do it. Everything they told him how he was behaving, he behaved that way with them. And he keeps going back to it because all I cared about was the gospel. That's all I cared about, and that's why I behave that way. So as we're thinking about being spiritual influencers, think about our behavior and our conduct. We're going we're gonna to do stupid stuff. We're going to make mistakes. I do it with my kids daily. Regret how I interact with them or how I said something or how I talked to their mom. 
but let's think about our behavior. Let's strive for better conduct. Let's strive to be influential in their lives. Let's be willing to admit when we make those mistakes. Be honest and be genuine. Be authentic, like we talked about, to where our character is authentic with the people we're trying to influence. And we'll be good spiritual influencers as we try to do that. Listen as he goes on here in verse number 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, so he leaves the the mother analogy, the nurturing mother analogy, you know like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he kind of tacks on to the nurturing behavior with the, the fatherly example. And that's, it's not popular to say this stuff, right? There's different roles for the mother and the father. You can't say that these days. But the mother's a nurturing role. Well, they nurtured that new congregation. But then they took the fatherly role as well. And what did he say about that? We exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you. Now think about what those things mean. I was listening to a guy talking about this passage on a clip on YouTube, and I like how he described this. But he said, when you think about what it means to exhort someone, what you're saying to them is, I want you to do this. When I exhort you, I'm I'm telling you what I want you to do. If I exhort my children, hey, I really want you to behave this way, right? We talk with Bentley a lot about the dress at the high school, the dress code, and how all the girls present themselves and things like that. So we exhort her to dress in a godly way, in a way that's modest, in a way that's representative of a Christian. I want her to behave that way. And then he also encouraged them. We encourage our children, right? Encouragement means I, you can do this, right? It's the pep talk. When I encourage you, you can do this. When, you, when he tells a congregation something, hey, I want you to do this. I'm exhorting you to do this, but I'm also encouraging you. I know you can do it. You can do this. And we say that to our kids all the time, right? You, you've got this, whether they're playing a sport or they've got a big test, or we know something about their behavior. I know you can be better than that. You can do this. And then he says, I charged you. And that's the little more stern version of that, right? That's saying, I need you to do this. I I want you to do this, and I know you can do it, and I need you to do this. And he said, we did all three of those things as the father figure of the relationship to this new congregation And we did it all for the gospel. We did it all for God because we wanted you to walk worthy in a manner of God. And that's why we did all those things. We encouraged you to walk in that way. We charged you to walk in that way. All for God's glory, for his kingdom, for his glory. Influential behavior that he showed to those people. And it's a really good example for us. Remember back to chapter 1 when he praised them for imitating him? He knew that they could imitate him because of how he behaved. You know, there's times where I've done stuff and acted in a way in front of my children where I would not exhort them or encourage them or charge them to behave like I just behaved. But there's times if I do know that I'm doing things the way God wants it to, I would challenge them to behave that way. And that's what he's saying there. And it was all about influence. It was all about what he was able to convince him to do. And he wasn't just saying these vain words. He was showing it with his life. Influential behavior is important in the life of a spiritual influencer. I'm thinking about uh, the funeral the other day, and this is hard to talk about, and I wasn't even involved in it. But it's the first time I've been to a funeral in my life that I recall walking away feeling uplifted by being at a funeral. 
And Ty told a story about Sammy and one of her nurses, and he said that this woman noticed a difference for Sammy, uh, for the people that came to see Sammy, the attitudes of those people, how they reacted to that situation. And the nurse noticed a difference in that. And she, she asked Sammy about it and said, what's different about that? And it's the church. The church is the whole difference. The influence that you have with the relationships that you build in the church. If Sammy made a list of top 100 friends, I wouldn't be on that list, but I feel close to her. You know, I spent time with her on occasion. It wasn't frequent. And it's the same way with thousands of people that I know in the church. The influence that you have in people's life makes all the difference in the world. I don't know if that nurse is going to go obey the gospel because of that, but a seed's been planted, and some level of influence has happened because of that, and it's all because of the church. We should strive to be that kind of influence. It, It was the behavior that pointed to God, not to Paul. Paul said it over and over again. It's not about me. It's about God. It's so that you would walk worthy of God. It's so that you would bring glory to God in His kingdom. It's not about me. And I would argue that Paul sacrificed a great many things for the sake of the gospel, personally speaking. He sacrificed many things. And I would make the argument to you, to influence somebody's life requires sacrifice. If you're going to be a real influence in someone's life, you're going to sacrifice something. And it's just the way it works. If you're going to influence your kids, you're going to sacrifice something. If you're a parent, you know that. You make all kinds of sacrifices with time and money, the things that you want to do for your kids. If you want to influence a spouse, you've got to make sacrifices. It means you don't always get your way. You don't always do the things you want to do. If you're going to influence somebody that you're trying to teach the gospel to, you're going to make sacrifices. You're going to sacrifice some of your time. You're going to sacrifice time with your family. You're going to sacrifice not getting to do the things you want to do personally. You're probably going to sacrifice some money somewhere along the way. It's part of being an influencer. You're going to make sacrifices. And most sacrifices come with a cost like that. And I would even say that a lot of those kind of sacrifices don't make a lot of sense. You hear about it all the time, people uh, in the church doing something for somebody and it being mind-boggling like that to that, like it was to that nurse. The sacrifices, why would all these people come see you? Why are they cheerful about this situation? Why are you able to laugh in times like these and hug people's neck and, and have an attitude like I see in this room? It's because there's a cost to sacrifice. Sometimes it's not explainable. It's not explainable with common sense terms. You can't figure out why somebody would spend time out of their work day to come to a funeral. You can't figure out why somebody would come see you in a hospital. They don't know you very much. Why somebody would visit you in a, in a retirement home when they don't know you that well. It's stuff that doesn't make sense. And if you, as I look back in my life and think about the people that have had a lot of influence, there's a lot of that kind of sacrifice involved. Stuff that wouldn't be explainable in other circumstances. Stuff that wouldn't be explainable to the common person if you don't know about this, if you don't know about the church and what goes on. It's stuff that doesn't make sense a lot of times. And many, many times, those are sacrifices that cannot be repaid. You hear about many celebrities, um, famous people, wealthy people, you know, as they give donations, as they give time to causes and things like that. I think about how that, how that 
works many times and how it always comes with a marketing message. It always comes with something that draws attention to the celebrity, to the fact that they gave a lot of money. Um, And that's not the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work is in humility and for the gospel's sake. And these kind of sacrifices that we're talking about and that kind of influential behavior many times can't be repaid. And that's, that's the mark of something. If you want to know somebody really cares about you, when somebody does something for you that they know you cannot repay, that's when somebody cares about you. That's a real sacrifice. Somebody, and that could be monetary. Maybe you give, somebody gives you some money, and there's no way in the world that you can ever repay that money. That's a sacrifice, and Paul made many of them here. And I would argue that as we think about being spiritual influencers, that we have to develop a mindset that is okay with sacrifice. I would argue that as we try to be Christians, that we should develop a mindset that is okay with sacrifice because that comes with the territory. You have to be willing to sacrifice. It's not always about what you want to do. It's not always about what's convenient. It's not always about serving your own self-interest. In fact, it's the opposite. It should be never about those things. Sacrifice leads to influence in our behavior. And after all of this sacrifice that Paul went through and all of this commentary about his character and his integrity, his motives, his behavior, all of that, what does it lead to? If you think about the church in Thessalonica, he's writing to them and he's commending them on that. What does it lead to? What's the end result of all this? We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, the word of, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What was the result of all this? The result was they accepted it. You know, he didn't say we walked into town... We flipped open our Bible, we read to you some scriptures, and you accepted the word and everything's going great. No, he said, I spent time with you. I developed a passionate longing for you. I wanted to see you obey the gospel. And we became friends, and you're very dear to me. And what they do? They accepted the word. And not only did they accept it, they didn't say, we accept because Paul is a good guy. He spent a lot of time with us. We're really close now. They accepted it as the word of God because of the way Paul went about his business and the influence that he built and the legacy that he left in Thessalonica. And he thanked them for that. The impact of being a good influence. Don't ever underestimate the impact that being a good influence can have. We talk about the different roles in the church and what people do and the talents that they have. If you want to impact the church, be a good influence in people's lives. You may never be able to preach a sermon or be a good song leader or whatever else, the things that we always talk about, talent people have. If you want to impact the church, influence somebody's life in a positive way, and the church will be impacted. All of that was made possible in Thessalonica by, that, by his influence. And as much as the Charles Barclays of the world don't want to be an example, they are. And they're influencing somebody. And that's the sobering part of all of this, is you are influencing somebody today. A slew of kids sitting in this audience are being influenced by their parents. They're being influenced by other people in this congregation that they spend a lot of time around. And that's the way it should be. But we've got to make sure we're doing it the right way. 
Let's make sure our motives are right. Let's make sure our conduct is correct in that as we influence each other's children. And I, I really believe that Paul would argue, and I think he essentially is arguing here, that all of the things he's commending them for in chapter 1 are because of the, how he went about influencing them. And he knows that that's the right way. And he's also talking to them, and we're going to get into that next time, on staying the course kind of, right? The influence, not only, it wasn't a, I'm going to influence you and move on. It's a continual cycle. And he was grateful that they didn't see that message as only coming from him, but that they saw it coming from God. And he said, I, I see that, that this is at work in you. I see that this is at work in your lives, and it's the Word of God at work in your lives. And how did he know it was at work? He finishes up this little section. It's not the close of the chapter, but he kind of finishes this line of thinking here. He says, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are at Judea. He kind of has full circle from his original message in chapter 1, back to the imitation thing. But here he's using it to describe how he knows it's at work in them. Remember, he said, I see it. The word of God is at work in you. How does he know that? Because you became imitators of those churches in Judea. You imitated me like he'd already told him in chapter 1. You imitated the Lord. All because of this foundation of influence that he laid. And that's how he knew that the word was at work in them. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So he's really critical of that group of Jews here right at the end. You know, the the people that were opposing all of this stuff that he was doing in his ministry. They killed the Lord. They don't want us to take the word to the Gentiles. They ran us out of your city in Thessalonica. Wrath has come upon them. It's for God to deal with, right? We're going to spread the gospel. God will deal with the judgment side of this. But he knew they were at work because of the imitation, the example, all the stuff we talked about last time that he was commending them for. All of that was made possible by the influence, and it led them to the gospel. It led them to follow his example, and it led them to become examples. Remember what he said? You're, this, the word is sounded forth. We don't even have to talk about it because people are seeing what you're doing. Your actions are following your words. Show me your faith by your works. Show me what your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And that's exactly what Paul did here as he established the influence, and that's exactly what he taught the church in Thessalonica to do. Do what, do what we've told you. Do it because we've showed you. Do it because it's God's will. And practice what you preach, and you'll be able to influence others. What kind of spiritual influencer are you today? Take away for the week, coming week. Think about the kind of influence, spiritual influence you have in someone's life. What kind of impact are you making there? Are you, are you influencing them spiritually at all? We've already established that you're influencing people. Are you influencing your children spiritually on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? Are you influencing your friends, your coworkers spiritually? Let's, in, let's endeavor to be spiritual influencers. Let's accept the job of spiritual influencer. It doesn't involve GoPros or swimsuits or fancy travel or any of that kind of stuff. But we can influence other people, and I would argue that we should influence other people. 
You're influencing someone's right today. Let's have the right heart and the right motives and the right character as we do that. And be willing to work for it. Like he said, we work for it. We didn't want to be accused of anything. Let's be willing to work for that influence. Let's understand that it's a fragile thing. That kind of influence can be shaken with one casual comment or one idle deed. Let's work hard for it and hold on to it, and let's be good influencers. If you need to make changes in your life today to become a better influencer, do that. Do what you need to do. There's a perfect example laid out for you in this chapter. This whole book is a really good example of that. Make those changes. Maybe you're someone like the Thessalonians. You've, you've just been taught the gospel. You've heard of this. Look at the people talking to you about it. It's okay to do a character judgment and evaluation of those people. Paul welcomed that. He wanted them to look at his character and his actions and what he had previously done in his life and what he was doing when he was with them. Surely we can see the value of that as we interact with people. If you haven't obeyed the gospel this morning, think about what you've heard about that. Think about the people that are influencing your life. It's okay to challenge them to be this kind of person. It's okay to use that kind of character and action and work ethic and all that kind of stuff. It's okay to look at that and evaluating what's right in religion. Look at the people trying to influence you in your religious decisions as you're trying to make those decisions and make them based on what God wants you to make, not on what some man wants you to make. If the church can help you in any way, we invite you to come forward as we sing the invitation song.